0: Sending money for the first time in the history of man. Nations combined to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and men turned to science for new devices of warfare, which reached an unparalleled peak in their capacity for destruction. And now, fought with the terrible weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on Earth, comes the War of the World. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. This is the long-gestating War of the Worlds episode. Herbert George Wells is regarded quite correctly as the godfather of science fiction, and you only have to look at his body of work to understand why. Alien invasions, time travel, lost civilization, science gone awry, it's all there in his work, the foundations of pretty much all of the science fiction genre. War of the Worlds, arguably his most popular work, was first published in 1898, the end of the 19th century. The plot, I probably don't need to remind you of, but just in case, centres around a Martian invasion of Earth, specifically England, specifically a few small towns around London. It's this setting that made War of the Worlds particularly appealing to me as a child when I first read the book. I was used to seeing small town England being invaded on a weekly basis thanks to Doctor Who, but even then these were clandestine invasions. Most of the movies I had seen up to that point largely took place in far-off and exotic lands. Captain Kirk may have fought the gone on Cestus III, but in my head I really knew it was the equally far-away and equally exotic Northern California. Godzilla also never trampled his scaly feet over my neck of the woods, preferring the equally glamorous and equally far-away Tokyo. War of the Worlds eschews this by having the action take place in small towns around London, which I delighted in. The aliens in V made a splash when they arrived, docking their impressive flying saucers over major landscapes. The Martians of War of the Worlds are taking a more covert attempt at invasion, with a series of cylinders crashing to Earth, firstly at Horsell Common, and then at scattered locations around. Its most recognisable location nowadays being the sixth cylinder, which lands in Wimbledon. It's a better excuse than rain-stopping play, I suppose. Our unnamed protagonist witnessed the cylinders landing and is one of the first people on the scene to witness the cylinders open and get our first look at the hideous invaders. These cylinders quickly become Martian war machines, huge tripods that go to town on the British Army, although a minor victory is scored when the army destroys a tripod. However, for the most part, the enemy, who we don't know, don't know what they want and don't seem interested in communicating, simply start mowing everyone down with their heat ray. This was remarkably powerful stuff. Whilst the enemy was advancing on the nation's capital, I was gripped by the invasion story. An implacable foe, completely alien to us, literally, with a way of life we don't understand, just rocked up on our shores and decided to take what they wanted, without so much as a buy-your-leave. Potent stuff. That they ate flesh and drank blood just made them even more horrific. However, the book does flounder a bit in its mid-section, an error more egregious to me when rereading it for this than as a kid, although I do recall wondering when we were going to get back to seeing the Martians firing their cool heat rays again. The protagonist seems to wander from place to place, meeting up with people we don't really care about and hiding a lot. There's even a fair bit of time spent with the narrator's brother in London, which at least has the Navy attack the tripod. I guess what I'm saying is, Although War of the Worlds is held in high regard, and rightly so, it's not as focused a novel as The Invisible Man, and could do with some tightening up and editing. Eventually, the narrator makes it to London to discover the aliens are all dead, killed by a bacterial infection, which many people mock today, but was a Twilight Zone-esque ending at its time. What set War of the Worlds apart, and still does, is the glee in which Wells has the Martians incinerate regular everyday places like Woking and Shepherd's Bush... Whilst I can't imagine these names mean anything to readers not from England, seeing regular small towns being trashed and normal people being killed was a big deal, and one can see why it fascinated readers of the time. It was, in many ways, the precursor to disaster movies and the penchant for smashing up well-known landmarks, but unlike those movies, it was remarkably accurate in its geography. The narrative of the book also jumps around a lot. The narrator is telling the story in the first person, but also in the past tense, so we know he survives. He also tells us a lot of stuff he couldn't have been there to see, and is rather uninteresting in and of himself. He's there purely to tell us the story, and it's not particularly compelling in how he does it. Of course, this is science fiction. And what science fiction without a little bit of allegory? At the time War of the Worlds was written and set, not only was there a fascination with Mars and the possibility of life on Mars, surely a key part of making the Invaders Martians, But Britain was at the height of its powers as a global force and was the largest empire in the history of the planet. The British Empire stretched the globe, covering almost a quarter of the Earth's total land area, and noted British colonialist Cecil Rhodes even looked at the stars and envisioned colonising other worlds. The idea of colonialism was considered totally normal and it's even fair to say that England considered itself the most important country in the world, which naysayers were already pointing out at the time leads you to thinking you're the only country in the world. Those naysayers were also starting to point out that if you were to arrive in a far off land, say Africa, or start wiping out the natives with superior technology, like say the Tasmanians, and thrust your own viewpoint upon them, how does that make us any different to the Martians? The aggressor becomes the aggressee. Wells wasn't particularly subtle on this point, even pointing it out in one passage in the book itself, but presumably he wanted to make his point clear. He successfully managed to shake Victorian society out of their complacency. He wasn't so much pointing out England was in danger of invasion, or indeed trying to be a fear-monger. England hadn't been successfully invaded since 1066. But he wanted to point out how we'd feel if we were treated as we'd treated others. And what would it do to us? Would we be heroic, like the narrator's brother? Crack up, like the curate? Or look out for number one? If it were written today, we'd probably even have some people collaborating with the Martians. When War of the Worlds is exciting, it is very exciting. But when it drags, it really drags. I still want a faithful adaptation of this, though, although I wouldn't be too upset if the protagonist was made a little bit more interesting and there was less meeting random people and hiding for a bit. Whilst reading the novel, it reveals some cracks in the armour. I still hold it as one of my favourite books, and would love the BBC to adapt it properly and faithfully, something we still haven't been given. How about we skip this year's adaptation of yet another tedious Jane Austen novel that's been adapted a thousand times before, and adapt this. I never want to see another Mr Darcy, but I'd love to see a Martian tripod stomp all over Big Ben. A little-known sequel followed in 1898, serialised in a New York newspaper, and was ultimately published in novel form under the title Invasion of Mars, and essentially just reversed the plot, like a lot of sequels. In this story, by George P. Service, Mankind reverse-engineers the Martian technology and launched an attack on Mars. Whilst this sequel isn't particularly well-regarded, it did prove that War of the Worlds successfully captured the imagination of its readers. Its power would transcend its country of origin when, in 1938, Orson Welles would create a powerful and provocative radio play based upon the novel. Broadcast on October 30th, it made a few changes to the story. For one, it was now set in New York and New Jersey, a far cry from Surrey, but a setting more appropriate for the listeners. Secondly, it was updated to be contemporary and give the feel of a then-modern-day news broadcast, with Wells frequently interrupting musical standards to update listeners on the Martian invasion, this time replacing the allegory of British colonialism with the more relevant threat of Hitler and his own war machine marching over Europe. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air... In The War of the Worlds, by H.G. Wells. What Wells couldn't possibly have foresaw was a number of people missing the opening that mentioned the programme's fictional nature, and a nationwide panic ensued. Wells did later apologise, kind of, but his apology basically took the form of, well, the book's nearly 40 years old, so you should really have read it by now, which is funny if nothing else. What's remarkable about Orson Welles' version of War of the Worlds is how well it stands up. Plot and resolution is the same as the novel, but Wells, in making it contemporary, also made it timeless. This technique of taking a fictitious story and passing it off as real would be used to great effect in the BBC drama Ghostwatch in 1992. In that show, also broadcast on Halloween, real BBC presenters, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green and Mike Smith, were shown to be investigating a haunted house. And, as with War of the Worlds, the viewing audience weren't paying attention to the fact that this clearly had a written-by credit, and were stunned when Parkey was possessed on air. The BBC received a record number of complaints. Unlike Wells, who was basically unapologetic, the BBC cowed, and the show was never been repeated. I think my reply to every negative letter would have been, did you look at the date it was transmitted? I originally heard Wells's version when it was given away as a free cassette tape on a movie magazine. I think it was Empire, it may have been Total Film, and I loved it. It's still great, and if you want to check it out, it is available on archive.org, and I strongly recommend you do so. It's a remarkably stunning piece of radio. Impressed by the radio adaptation, filmmaker George Pal leapt at the chance to make a movie of the property in 1953, again updating the story to be more contemporary and switching out the subtext, this time making it about the Cold War. The movie War of the Worlds boasts some very impressive effects, work and photography, and it's arguable that this is why the movie is as fondly remembered as it is. To complement the Cold War settings, these Martians can withstand the blast of an atomic bomb, as nothing shakes people out of their complacency more than learning their most feared weapons don't amount to a hill of beans. Powell also makes the war truly global, having cylinders land all over the world. I must confess I'm not that big a fan of the 50s movie. The special effects are still impressive, and the Martian war machines almost get you over the disappointment of no tripods, but Gene Barry's performance is wooden and some of the alterations would have grated on H.G. Wells himself, given his atheistic leanings. It's not as good a movie as Forbidden Planet, or as challenging as The Day the Earth Stood Still, but it is a memorable and visually interesting movie, and the war machines have become iconic in their own right. The War of the Worlds concept still proved to be fertile ground for comics as well, with there being a moderately faithful comics adaptation in 1955, part of the classic illustrated line, and a version by Alex Nino from Pendulum Press. Marvel Comics even did a continuing sequel series entitled Killraven that was set after a successful invasion took place in 2001, and they did their own adaptation of The Boot, written by Chris Clermont, as part of the Marvel Classics Comics line, which sadly I've never read. So if anyone has a copy that they don't want, I'll take it off your hands. DC Comics even got in on the action. Batman No. 1 contains a reference to Orson Welles' radio broadcast. And Superman Issue 62, Black Magic on Mars, has Orson Welles join the Man of Steel to battle Martians. Superman would again do battle with the Martians in an Elseworld adaptation of the book that dropped Superman into the narrative. Other comics from various companies have all followed around 2005 when Steven Spielberg's version of the story debuted. Perhaps the most memorable adaptation of War of the Worlds came in 1978 with Jeff Wayne's typically 70s rock opera concept album of the same name. in the 1970s. It came in a magnificent gatefold double vinyl LP sleeve, boasting magnificent paintings by Peter Goodfellow, Jeff Taylor and Michael Trim. I pored over these paintings for hours as a kid, so masterfully did they convey the horror but excitement of an alien invasion. The image of the first cylinder embedded in the ground at Horsell Common as the early morning mist rolls over the landscape is gloriously evocative, and the images just get better as the pages are turned. The Martian tripod casually exterminating London and Victoria-era gents and ladies fleeing in panic is terrifying to a small child, but the best image is the tripod astride the Royal Navy, decimating the fleet's finest warships, including the HMS Thunderchild with its heat wreck. Listening to the album as a child, I stirred at these images for hours. I can still conjure them up in my mind's eye without too much trouble, and recall them almost line for line. Particularly gruesome is the final painting of blackbirds pecking out the innards of the fallen tripods. One of the sad things about owning this on CD is the paintings, while still excellent, somehow lack the grandeur of the LP versions. The story is narrated in the wonderfully stentorious tones of Richard Burton, and nobody has ever delivered the opening monologue better. As with the novel, the story is split up into two chapters, The Coming of the Martians and The Earth Under the Martians, and is well adapted by Doreen Wayne, trimming some of the fat of the novel and making it a far more streamlined experience. The songs are all catchy and well performed, albeit a tad overblown, but this is a 70's concept album cast are uniformly excellent, with Thin Lizzy's Jeff Lynott and David Essex being part of it, and despite their 70s origins, the songs are still strong and not all that dated. The album produced a number of top ten hits. Wayne was inspired to adapt War of the World into prog rock form after reading it in his local library. Its themes of colonialism and persecution appealed to him, given his father's history having been blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee for playing a benefit for the singer Paul Robeson. Whilst he considered adapting Day of the Triffids or Brave New World, it was War of the Worlds that sang to him, quite literally as it would turn out. The project would turn out to be a nightmare to complete, costing a whopping £240,000, completely trashing the cost of the previous most expensive record ever, Queen's A Night at the Opera, by £195,000, But Wayne was rewarded with a record that sold 13 million copies on initial release, clocking up 235 weeks on the UK charts. Still powerful and bombastic, Wayne adds a coda involving a NASA probe landing on Mars and witnessing a plume of green smoke before all contact is lost. A nice modern addition to the story. If you've never heard it, it's worth picking up. If you've never heard it, where the hell have you been? In 1988, Paramount Pictures had launched Star Trek The Next Generation into successful television syndication and, having proved the market was viable for a one-hour dramatic television show, cast their net for another property. They reeled in The War of the Worlds, a two-season wonder that is actually much underrated. Yes, it bore scant resemblance to Wells's novel, but it was a direct sequel to the 1953 movie, which was a nice touch in this era of reboots. The show's premise is explained in the opening titles. In 1953, Earth experienced the War of the Worlds. Common bacteria stopped the aliens, but it didn't kill them. Instead, the aliens lapsed into a state of deep hibernation. Now the aliens have been resurrected, more terrifying than ever before. In 1953, aliens started taking over the world. Today, they're taking over our bodies. A combination of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Invaders, War of the Worlds drew flack for its horror and gruesome effects. The show regularly featuring dissolving bodies, dismembered corpses, and in one memorable scene, an alien using his three-fingered suckered hand to hurl a human across the room by his eyeballs. But I quite liked the effects. The show was an unabashed schlock B-movie, and instead of hiding that fact, it embraced it. These aliens could inhabit human bodies, but only for a time, as the then dead hosts would melt, and the aliens were wonderfully catty. One episode in which the aliens are harvesting human brains refers to them as useless for their original purpose, but necessary for us, and the show was frequently downbeat, with the human team losing as much as they won. That human team was led by Harrison Blackwood, played by Jared Martin, the adoptive son of the characters played in the film by Jean Barry and Anne Robinson, and Robinson reprises her role in a number of episodes. Blackwood is an unorthodox scientist who refuses to touch a gun, but is so enthusiastically played by Martin you can't help but like him. His team is rounded out by single mother Suzanne McCullough, played by Linda Mason-Green, computer genius Norton Drake, played by Phil Aiken, and predators are Richard Chavez as Lieutenant Colonel Paul Ironhorse, leader of the military group assigned to the Blackwood Project. It's a very low-budget operation, a source for much humour for the writers, and the first season is very enjoyable. One episode, Eye for an Eye, even takes place on the 50th anniversary of the Wells broadcast and established that it was a real invasion that was subsequently covered up, which is pretty much the same plot as the movie *Buckaroo Banside. The writer used the aliens to make the usual social commentary on humanity, not particularly subtly, with their constant references from the aliens about how humans are screwing up the planet, and the characters are built up quite well over the first 22-episode run. It's cheap, yes, but cheerful and fun, embracing its silliness and owning it, and some of the episodes are actually quite clever. Sadly, the series never achieved the success of Star Trek, and for its second season the show was completely revamped, something that has never worked in the history of television. A new group of aliens arrive, kill off the first batch and launch an all-out attack on the Blackwood team, killing Drake and Iron Horse and forcing Blackwood, McCullough and McCullough's daughter Debbie, played by clueless star Rachel Blanchard, on the run with new recruit John Kincaid, played incredibly woodenly by Highlander's Adrian Paul. I can only assume he must have had some acting lessons in between this and Highlander. The second season is bleak and dull and filmed with a washed-out look. The producers, who also worked on Friday the 13th the series, remove everything that was fun about the series in the space of one 45-minute episode and then proceed to bore the audience rigid for the remaining 19 shows. The first season had problems. It established that no one remembered the 1953 invasion, which was just silly. But at least it was entertaining schlock. Season 2 is just boring as hell. In 2005, I was incredibly excited to learn that Steven Spielberg was to produce and direct a new version of The War of the Worlds. Excited because it would hopefully be a return to form for Spielberg, who had been making movies that can best be described as worthy but dull for a few years at that point. If anyone can make War of the Worlds as a period piece properly, I thought, it's Spielberg. Imagine my crushing disappointment, therefore, when Tom Cruise was cast and the movie became another in Spielberg's canon about broken families, and yet another contemporary take on the material. The central metaphor this time is obviously the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center. It's not that Spielberg's War of the Worlds is bad, it's quite an entertaining alien invasion movie, and its bleak tone is a nice contrast to the overblown histrionics of Independence Day. It's that I expected better from Spielberg. I wanted my 19th century set version, damn it! War of the Worlds is one of those ideas that if H.G. Wells hadn't written it, someone would have, sooner or later. It's just too good of a concept for someone not to dream up. It has it all, a faceless and implacable foe that can be applied to different eras and settings easily, a plucky band of human resistors and an ending in which nature proves she's the biggest badass of all. It can be taken as allegorical science fiction at its finest, or a simple adventure story. It's one of the most influential stories ever written, and one of the best. Oft imitated, never bettered. We'll end with the opening that started it all, still one of the best opening paragraphs of a novel. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinised and studied. Perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those beasts that perish, Intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this Earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Ah, still magnificent. Great opening. Um, just going to take a minute here to talk about Star Wars Rebels over the August bank holiday that we just had here in the United Kingdom. Disney XD earned a... Star Wars Rebels First Look, which looked like it was the first five minutes of the opening episode. And three like five minute shorts, The Machine in the Ghost, Art Attack and Entanglement were the titles. First of all, I was kind of aware of, of Star Wars Rebels, I know it had been announced just shortly after the cancellation of, of Star Wars Clone Wars, which came to an end. It's my understanding largely because of the Disney buyout of Lucasfilm. A lot of people were upset by this but I've got to be honest I never got in to Clone Wars so I didn't really have an opinion either way. It's not that I think the show's bad I don't. I've just never been able to to sit down and and watch any great amount of it. I do have season 5 on my phone from iTunes which I plan to watch one day to give it a go but until that day happened Clone Wars is just going to have to be a boat that left me on the island I didn't know very much about Rebels I kind of was aware of some of the creative team I think Dave Filoni is his name was um, part of the Clone Wars creative team and Greg Wiseman's involved in it and he was involved with the spectacular Spider-Man animated cartoon which is for my money the best Spider-Man cartoon there's ever been sadly only lasted two seasons again because of Disney buying out Marvel. So, the bank holiday weekend, they they, did, they had quite a lot of Star Wars stuff on this weekend in addition to these um, these first looks at Rebels. There was three Lego Star Wars short films on about 30 minutes each with advertisements. So I set the recorder for them because, as like I said, they were only like 5-10 minutes sandwiched in between other programs and I didn't really feel like sitting down watching Disney XD all day. The first thing that I have to, to say about them. Disney XD has perhaps the worst presentation of television I've watched in a long time. It's solidified my um, my stance of watching very little broadcast television. It's broadcast in 16 by 9 widescreen, but there are channel idents all over there. I mean, the big channel idents, they're not little things. Disney XD is written in you know, feasibly large letters in the left-hand corner of the screen, and then in the right-hand corner of the screen they had something like Summer Fun, or whatever they branded the Summer Programming with. Again, very large, but what was especially irritating, they weren't in the bottom left and the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, where you could possibly have ignored them. They'd plopped these things square where the corners of the screen would have been if you were watching it on a, a traditional old 4x3 television set. So, for viewers of the 16x9 presentation, they slap in the middle of the screen. Now, first of all, I think if you're shelling out for Disney XD, the chances are you've shelled out for a widescreen TV at this point, and you're not watching it on one of those things that takes 20 minutes to warm up. So, stick them in the corners, please. So, at least that way they're easy to ignore. But that wasn't even the most egregious thing. The most egregious thing is while you're watching these things... These pop-up ads keep appearing for what's on now. Well, I know what I'm watching now. I'm watching Star Wars. What's on next? Well, if I wanted to know what was on next, I'd press the guide button on my remote control. And what's on at 4.15? I don't give a damn what's on at 4.15. Stop telling me what's on. I can press a button on my remote control and it brings up this amazing thing that tells me what's on TV this day. And if you've got Disney XD, then you've obviously paid for cable, which means you've got one of these controls that gives you an on-screen TV guide. So please just stop, because that was just irritating. So what of... The, the shows themselves. Well, I watched them in the order they were transmitted. They started showing them at 7.45 in the morning and they heard them, as I say, between programmes. So I sat down and watched it when I got up, which was about 11 o'clock. because It was a bank holiday, so I didn't have to get up for work. They're on about three or four times throughout the day because it's it's a cable channel and they show things 48 times. The first one was one called Machine in the Ghost. Um, and now, I may be mixing these up, but I think... This was one that centered around a Millennium Falcon-esque starship and a heroic male and female lead and a cute robot. And it was basically just a remake of the TIE Fighter attack scene from the original Star Wars after Ben's died and they launch off from the Death Star. And it even featured the same music, that the same John Williams cute da all of that stuff. And it was pretty much a shot-for-shot remake of that scene. Now, I know that the producers of of this cartoon have said that they're aiming for the tone and feel of the original Star Wars trilogy and the fact that it's set in between Episode 3 and 4, about ten years before A New Hope, which I kind of refuse to call it, but okay, we'll go with it. So that, that that's the feel that they're going for. But there's a difference between the tone and feel of it, capturing the tone and feel of it, and doing a shot-for-shot shot remake. So I wasn't overly impressed with this first one. The robot was too cute, and the dialogue just seemed to be a rehash of that scene, and the guy just seemed to be a warmed-over Han Solo, like a warmed-over lasagna not as good. And the fact that it didn't fill me with with confidence. I mean, I get what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to say be saying, this is the original trilogy, the feel of it, the tone of it. But like I said, I didn't want that. I didn't want a shot for shot remake. I want something that feels like Star Wars and looks like Star Wars, but isn't just rehashing what we've seen before. So that wasn't an auspicious beginning. It has to be said. The second shot, though, was called Art Attack, which was actually much better it's centred around a young girl who's dressed in Boba Fett-type Mandalorian armour, but because she's a girl, it's got pink graffiti on it. It's obviously uh, an attempt to, to bring in the tween female audience, but the actual shot was quite impressive. She was basically sneaking onto an Imperial landing bay, landing dock, and squirting graffiti of the Rebel Alliance symbol that was on the, the hats that... Um, Luke wore in the Attack on the Death Star, the, the X-Wing fighter helmet. And it was action-packed and interesting and quite cute, and it did feel like an extrapolation of the original idea of Star Wars, that the Rebel Alliance started with young people being mad as hell and not taking it anymore. And this felt like a way that a young person would rebel with graffiti and vandalism and, and, you know, minor annoyance stuff that the Imperials probably wouldn't really be that bothered with. And it was it was quite fun, and I enjoyed it. And uh, that kind of stoked me up for the final of the three that they showed this day, which was called Entanglement. Were some big hulking monster that kind of looked like a Ralph McQuarrie pre-production painting of um, of either Chewbacca or the original concept for Han Solo, I forget which. Was just walking down an alleyway on what looked like Tatooine, but it could have been anywhere. When he came across a couple of rebels. Uh, A couple of rebels, a couple of imperials generally be bullies to a market trader and he interfered. And that, again, was a good one. So that was, so two out of three, as Meatloaf will have it, ain't bad. The look of the show is very much the look of the original Star Wars, but I spotted a number of characters in the background that looked very much like Ralph McQuarrie production paintings. There was one, if you're familiar with one of Ralph McQuarrie's original production paintings stars, Star Wars, there's a character who has like, goggles and a vest-type top and a little goatee beard holding a lightsaber, and he was in the background of one of the scenes. And like I say, the, the big hulking character, who was the star of the third cartoon shot, was also recognisable as a McQuarrie production painting. So, uh, of the three... that that Disney XD showed today, and if you could ignore the god-awful presentation, they were quite impressive. And I'm quite interested in seeing where this goes. The other thing that they showed was a, a first look, which looked like the first five minutes of the first episode. All of the people that we were introduced to in the three shots were all together as like a team. And there was a young character, a young lad, involved in this one who seemed like a bit of a rapscallion who also looks like he's going to be part of the team and gets caught up in the middle of them doing something with speeder bikes or something i didn't quite follow what it was it may not have been the first five minutes of a show it may have just been a clip but there was no background information there was no interviews with the people that have made the show to explain what this is and what it was about i suppose if you're a disney xd viewer you're just kind of thrown in oh yeah look a new star wars show is starting Perhaps most interesting, they had an advert for the Phineas and Ferb Star Wars special, which is going to wear on September 11th of this year, apparently. And that looks very much like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing, or like um, Tag and Bink, where it looks like Phineas and Ferb and their respective characters are going to be doing something in and around the original Star Wars. So, So that looks quite interesting. So that was just my initial thoughts on Star Wars Rebels. They're probably old news, I presume. These shorts and clips and everything else have already been on the internet for 48 weeks, and I'm just behind the times because I tend to, to stay away from first looks and stuff like that. I would rather watch the show when it errs and be surprised pleasantly on not by the actual show. So that's my initial thoughts on Star Wars Rebels. There was no point giving it its own show because it was only a five minute thing. But if you have any thoughts on it, feel free to email me or even on War of the Worlds uh, on Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com. Just coming in under the wire, as I was editing this episode, Luke Giaconetti emailed in with gone trekking. Captain Leyland, oh boy, I have to say that I was excited for this top ten Trek episode, and it certainly delivered. For some reason in my head, I thought you meant you were going to be covering your top ten episodes of Star Trek across all the incarnations, which would be quite the undertaking. This episode is much more reasonable. Yeah, I thought that, Luke. I do want to speak briefly about the remastered versions of the original series, which you mentioned towards the end of the episode. Here in the upstate of South Carolina, one of our local TV affiliates shows Trek on Saturday nights at 9pm, and they always are the remastered versions. They work wonderfully well because they treat the original material with respect and don't mess with what typically is the best part of any Trek episode, the writing. If I may crib a concept from former professional wrestling executive Eric Bischoff, a weekly television show needs Sarsa, story, action, reality, surprise and anticipation. The best Trek episodes hit all of these items, the high concept story, the hand to hand or ship to ship action, reality filtered through a science fiction lens, surprising twists to keep the viewers on their toes and anticipation of where the crew will go next. The remasters don't touch any of these elements, and thus they are successful in my estimation. The Ultimate Computer is a personal favourite of mine. I just happened to catch it on the local affiliate a few months back, and it holds up really well. The obsolescence of humanity in the face of rapidly changing technology is a topic which is just as relevant today as it was in the 60s add to that the theme of Kirk as a dunzel or relic or dinosaur, which would get mine to great effect in Wrath of Khan as well as in the later films, and you have an episode which does a great job of mixing action, tension and suspense, while still giving you your daily recommended dose of food for thought. In my mind I always purr this one up with the changeling in that both deal with so-called intelligent machines, which behave somewhat like actual machines. Both of these would probably end up in my top ten episodes personally. Given this pedigree, my love of Star Trek The Motion Picture is no surprise. Balance of Terror is another episode which just simply works. Everything about it fires on all cylinders, and the running time flies by, always the mark of good drama. Unlike a mock time, I think that, at least until the J.J. Abrams remake essentially spoiled the general populace on the idea that Vulcans and Romulans have shared heritage, you could set a trek newbie down with this episode without much problem. I might even put balance on the top of my list. Speaking of a mock time, I applaud as your choice of number one, because it too is a classic which has earned its status. Talk about your high concept story. But even beyond the high concept, the details work too, with compelling characters and eyebrow-raising world-building developments. So I can find no fault with having a mock time at the top of the heap. At the time of my listening to the episode, I am currently reading the novelisation of Battlestar Galactica, which adapts the three-hour pilot saga of a star world. Understanding Galactica was more of a reaction to Star Wars than Trek... I am nonetheless struck by the stark differences between them. Star Trek's effects, whilst excellent for the time, were nowhere near the level of BSG. I don't think anyone would argue with that. And the series' concepts, the five-year mission and the never-ending search for Earth, are both fantastic story engines which could churn out countless stories. But the reason Trek found long-term success and fandom and Battlestar did not was pretty clear, and that comes back to Sarsa. There are some good stories on Galactica, and there is more than enough action, but it rarely surprises the viewer. It attempts at reality are often bizarre, and there is little anticipation of where they go next, because the series' writing was so loosey-goosey. And as you know, I'm a big fan of Galactica, but let's face it, it's not a great show in a lot of ways. So while Trek, like its brethren, the similar 1960s sci-fi franchise start as Doctor Who and Ultraman, it has flaws inherent from the schedule and budget, ultimately it demonstrates, that a well-written show will find its fans. As if to put a cherry on the top of this point, when Battlestar Galactica got some solid Sarsa, it became a hit. Thanks for a great episode. Really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on some classic track, Luke. Oh, you're very welcome, Luke. Thank you very much. Regarding the 70s Galactica, I may do an episode... ...on all of, of that, because it only lasted one series... ...because the less said about Galactica 80, the better. And like you, I'm, I'm quite the fan of the original Galactica... ...but, you know, it's not a great show... ...by any stretch of the imagination. The opening episodes after Saga of a Star World... ...basically play out like westerns. Like, they were... ...they suddenly had to come up with script really quickly. Um, but when they did get into the idea of embracing... ...what they were talking about... ...the latter half of the first season of Battlestar... ...did a story arc... Which I, th- I think an awful lot of people forget when they, when they throw their plaudits at the X-Files or Babylon 5 or even Deep Space Nine for being one of the first shows that did story arcs. Battlestar Galactica did a story arc in its first season, and only season, towards the end. And uh, I, I don't think it gets the credit that it deserves for that. Next, our next email is from Chris Franklin. Who says, hello Andy, I have very vague memories of Alias, Smith and Jones. I think one of the older cable networks USO maybe aired the show in the late 1980s. I caught a few and enjoyed it, but recall very little about it. Having said that, I did enjoy your episode. I had no idea of the tragedy that befell the show. I didn't even realise another actor stepped in at some point. I'm not sure if your recording of the show was a coincidence or not, but obviously the reality of depression is on everyone's mind with the death of Robin Williams. Both this story and his tell us that success and fame cannot fill whatever hole depression may cause in a person's life. I think your message at the end was a very important and timely one. Thank you for the entertaining and well-handled episode, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. I was a little bit concerned about releasing an episode about an actor who committed suicide because of depression. The week that an actor committed suicide because of depression. But uh, most people seem to have, have taken it quite well, so we appreciate your feedback. I've got another one from Mr Luke Giaconetti, which is also centred around uh, Alias Smith and Jones. Just some good old boys robbing banks and trains. Uh, it is very similar to the Dukes of Hazard. I'll give you that. Luke says, Marshall and dude, seriously, I'd never heard of alias Smith & Jones. Being born in 1980, I was able to catch up on these science fiction TV shows of the 1960s and 70s due to reruns. But despite becoming familiar with shows such as Maverick and especially Gunsmoke through rerun outlets like TV Land, Smith & Jones is a complete blind spot to me. Sounds like a show that would be right up my alley. The complete series is out on one DVD set for a good price. I may have to pick that up. The tragedy of the death of Pete Doole being doubled down upon by ABC, essentially threatening Universal and continuing the series, is completely bizarre. It would be hard to imagine something like that happening nowadays. I was reminded a bit of the death of Andy Whitfield and the recasting of Spartacus with Liam McIntyre, but in that case, Whitfield's illness was a known issue, and Showtime worked to adjust their plans for the show, so it's more of an apples and oranges scenario, and certainly not nearly as crass or seemingly mean-spirited as ABC's behaviour here. Thanks for the illumination, my friend. Luke. Yeah, I think my distaste for it is that they just completely wiped out all mention or reference to the fact that the role had ever been played by a different actor. Um I've carried on watching the series it's it's not got the same appeal. It's not as must see as it I mean we watched it every night when we were having tea... because everyone could watch it... because it was very family orientated... but I found that even Angela and Anya... were enjoying it as well... and then when Roger Davis took over... it's, it's like it's a different show... which kind of emphasises how much one actor... does bring to a role... Davis plays Hannibal Hayes... as having a much shorter fuse... than Dool ever did... Dool always played it as very internal... because obviously he was a poker player... so he didn't want his opponent to know... he'd gotten under his skin and so by Davis playing in with a much shorter fuse Ben Murphy plays Kid Curry much broader and more comedic and it changed the relationship between the two of them and there's, there's just little things as well like I said in the other episode they never changed the wanted poster the wanted poster still clearly has Pete Dool's description on it and there's an episode where Sally Field comes back as Clementine Hale and she has the only known picture of Hayes and Curry and obviously now it's a picture of Roger Davis and, Pete and um, Ben Murphy rather than Pete Dool and Ben Murphy. And it's just like they went out of the way to whitewash that he'd ever been in it. There wasn't even a title card dedicating an episode to him. And I, I think it was absolutely shocking behaviour on behalf of ABC in comparison to Spartacus. Andy Whitfield's death was tragic but, you know, unavoidable. And the show had a commitment to carry on and Whitfield said to carry on. And to be fair, they dedicate an episode to Andy Whitfield after he died. And the very last shot of the series is a still frame of Andy Whitfield. So they never forgot that he'd been a part of the show, which I also think is is different. How they handled the lead actor's death and how Alias Smith & Jones handled a lead actor's death. The way the Spartacus producers did it was just class. And the way the Alias Smith & Jones people did it was just crass. There's no other word for it. Uh, The next bit of feedback, I don't normally do Facebook feedback, because normally I think if you you want your feedback on the show, then you'll email. And, you know, it's easy to lose track of stuff when it's on Facebook than uh, when it's an email. It's easier to keep track of it when it's an email. But this feedback that I did did receive, uh, I thought was actually very touching. So I'm just going to read this. Gord Tolton left a Facebook message that said, uh, I loved Alias Smith & Jones and was quite touched by your show. I recall the show, especially the opening, but not as well as I would have liked, thanks to the schedule hiding that Canadian TV networks did with it. These networks often pick up American shows, but if they are not immediately a ratings hit, they drop it in favour of newer or more powerful shows, or bury it in the schedule. As a result, I never saw Alias Smith and Jones longer than a few episodes, even though I would have done, I thought it would have done well in rural Western Canada. But the network execs, as in America, are always based urban Easterners. I never realised until your show how many seasons that it lasted, and wasn't a were of Pete Dool's suicide. Yes, it was timely and ironic given recent events and I thank you for your comments on depression. We have high profile fundraisers for physical diseases but mental illness sufferers are meant to suffer silently and that must stop now. Thank you for a great show Andy, a fond memory and a new mission to track down and rediscover Alias Smith and Jones. Adios from Alberta. Well you're very welcome and uh, I'm very glad that nobody seemed to think that what we did there was crass commercialism. As I'd like to say, I was a bit worried about releasing it. I'd, I had it planned before the Robin Williams death occurred. And um, in one of those really little bit of ironies, the last Pete Duel episode erred in reruns on the day that Robin Williams' death was announced. So that was, that was quite a shame. Alright, thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next time. Got a couple of things on the boiler, but I don't know what they'll be. So just stay tuned. You can feed back on HeyKidsComments.VirginMedia.com at virginmedia.com. have to set up a new email address just for the show. And we'll see you then. Bye bye.